Neve Sessions with AMS Neve. Today's guest is record producer, mixer, engineer and songwriter Jake Miller, who is here today to talk about a very unusual project that he recently co-produced, engineered and mixed for a special edition audiobook of Robert McFarlane's Ness. So welcome along, Jake. How are you today? Uh, very good. Just uh, enjoying the sun in California. The first time I've been you know, out of the country really since the pandemic hit. So all this vitamin D is very nice. It must be nice. I can't actually imagine that right now, as you can imagine it being December in um, England. Um, You've gone over to sunnier climates, I see. Yeah, just for a few weeks, sort of, uh, you know, quick nip out for the first time to remember what it's like to travel and then then back to London in a couple of weeks. Mm, I see. And what was it like uh, to be on a plane again? Or have you um, been on one since the restrictions have lifted a bit? Uh, no, that was the first like long haul flight. I had to do a funny little trip to Berlin because my UK visa was like expiring mid lockdown. And I, they, like, they were like, yeah, you have to Uh-oh. leave the country to do it. And I was like, oh, mid pandemic. All right, cool. Okay. Um, but no, this was definitely the first like proper long haul travel. And it was very strange because the plane was packed. It was like the second day they were letting people into the States who aren't citizens for, you know, basically mm. since last February. So it was it was pretty packed. Oh, but, it must have felt yeah. strange. Yeah, that was really weird, actually, because it was, you know, everyone's in a mask. There's like tensions are a little bit high. And then obviously there are always those few people who are sort of not really playing ball with the rules and the poor air hostesses and hosts had to sort of get in their faces and be like, oh, it's, sorry, your, your mask actually has to be over your nose. Yep. And then, yeah, yeah, a lot of that, but mostly just slept through it. Okay, that's probably the best thing. Um, so are you in uh, the studio right now? Uh, yeah, well, I'm up just at a friend's studio because this is more of just a friendly trip but um, rather than a work thing. But, you know, obviously a lot of friends are sort of in music anyway, so I've sort of wound up visiting their studios and stuff. And at the moment I'm just uh, up at a friend's studio in lovely Mount Washington. That's a very nice view. Very nice. So when you're um, back home, are you just working out of studios in London usually, or do you have one at home? Uh, well, I have a studio at home, which is was more thrown together for lockdown than anything. Um, but it's become fairly sufficient for most of the stuff I've been doing. And then I guess because I'm freelance, you know, whenever a job needs more, I'll just go, you know, to some studio in London, like, uh, a few of the times it's been like rack or mm-hmm. um worked at strong room a couple of times and uh i'm sure you know we'll talk about later the uh snap studio where i did this uh this thing with gengar in mm-hmm. last december but yeah so that was usually sort of work you know base from home and then go to bigger studios when you need you know a drum room or a bunch of old amps and mics and stuff like that yeah so which seems to be sort of quite a common way to work now that sort of seems like the default of most sort of producer engineer types these days yeah that makes sense um so before we get into this new project which sounds very intriguing um i'd love to hear a bit about you um you know your music taste growing up um and that sort of thing how it's influenced you were you really into that kind of thing as a kid and a teenager were you obsessed with music and all of that side of things yeah i mean it's it's more or less the same 
cliche story that everyone has getting into studios. It's like, you know, I hung around with some bands and then, you know, I was like the least talented musician as a kid, uh, or at least uh, wasn't willing to practice my instrument as much as everyone else was. But I definitely, I really loved music and I was, I was obsessed with it. But um, I guess my like sort of parallel love for like computers and technology and stuff sort of fed into it. And eventually I was like, okay, well, all my friends are better, you know, guitarists than me and piano players than me and all that stuff. So uh, I eventually sort of found my way over to studio recording and I was uh, really excited to go and study, uh, I think they call it music tech at the conservatorium in Queensland, which Mm -hmm. is, it's actually an interesting idea for, I think for like an audio sort of career type degree because they, it really was, taught as like a conservatoire, um, you know, music degree, but instead of doing instrument lessons and recitals, those classes were replaced with like studio, you know, practical classes and digital audio theory and stuff like that. So it was definitely like a more musical approach to uh, learning about audio. But in the end, I actually dropped out because I wanted to go and work in studios. And I'd been very fortunate. There was a studio right around the corner from where I was living when I was about 16 and I used to just go and bash on their door and like beg them to let me help. <laughs> and they didn't take me seriously for a long time until I mentioned I was reading that book, which is, you know, it's kind of old now, but it does seem to sit on a lot of like engineers shelves is that mixing with your mind by that Stavro guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think they just like, regardless of whether they liked the book, I think they just saw that I was, you know, really, really trying to take it seriously for a, for a teenager. Mm. And so they were like, oh, okay, well, if he's reading that book, I guess we can sort of take him a bit seriously and try and help him out. So they let me come and like roll up leads and things like that sort of. So yeah, very, very like cliche entry, but you know, it's, I guess it's tried and true. Yeah. And it's a start so, and you've got yourself <clears throat> in there and showed that you were really willing. So it, it clearly worked out. I wonder if it would be as easy these days to do the same. Well, it's funny you say that because, um, <clears throat> over the last few years, I think I've found a lot of studio like operators and stuff have made a lot of comments to me about like uh, when they've been trying to find, you know, young assistant engineers and stuff, they've kind of struggled um, because I guess a lot more kids are sort of like jumping on their laptop and sort of, you know, branding themselves a producer from like day one. And, you know, I guess as a studio manager or something, you're not really looking for someone who thinks they're already pretty hot. You're really looking for someone who just wants to learn and mm, is happy to sort scratch, of be, yeah. yeah, from molded in some way. And um, it's funny though, because, you know, they end up getting follow-up emails from those same kids going like, why, why didn't you call me about that job? And they'd be like, well, according to you, you're already, you know, an established producer. We're looking for an assistant. <laughs> so, okay. so yeah, I wonder, I, I wonder whether, uh, it would be easy if if the resume was is was written in a way that you know sort of suggested you were you were ready to learn mm. but i guess you know that's why i'm not studio manager and they're very capable people doing those jobs right so when you finally got into the studio you got your foot in the door i've passed um you know taking care of cables whatever important you know jobs they gave you first yeah. of all how did you tea cups of tea, tea coffee, all those things all the all the important stuff you know we've all got to do it but um what um how did you start to get your hands on more and more i guess serious work in the studio and um what was one of the first things you worked on can you remember 
Uh, well, I guess one of the really early things was just like, I was sort of assisting while the engineers at this studio, which was called Alchemix in Brisbane, Australia, um, they, you know, all the sort of local bands that were starting to get, you know, signed and stuff like that, uh, that first round of, I don't know, bands that start doing something right after they finish high school. That was sort of the main studio where everyone went because they had quite a cheap little like night package and you could, you know, buy five hours from like, you know, 6 p.m. to 11 if you wanted and you would get, you know, one of the junior engineers or something and they would all come in and try and like record an EP in a night kind of thing. Mm. So all my early experiences were just like a mad rush to try and record a ton of music in a really short amount of time and like, you know, get a whole band set up in an hour so that they had four hours to record. So that was, yeah, definitely a real like uh, boot camp for getting your engineering chops up, at least getting things done quickly. I think it wasn't until later that I got more time to, you know, get things right. Mm. But um, yeah, that was definitely, it was a, it was a good way to sort of just get all the basic stuff out of the way. Like, you know, as a kid, just having to get your head around, like how's a patch bay work and, where's that hum coming from and all that sort of stuff was like, it was a good, you know, uh, yeah, just fast, fast way to get through all those problems. Mm, absolutely. And now with a lot more experience under your belt, of course, um, what's one of the favorite projects that you've worked on? Um, I know that's probably a bit unfair to ask you, but I wonder if you had a particular favorite artist that maybe you're a fan of or just something unexpected that you ended up really enjoying. Uh, that's a good question um for me honestly it's like it's it's often the like sort of things in between the the you know more major projects because i guess you it's a lot less pressure and stuff and there's a lot of freedom so i mean yeah i guess you know i i try i'd make a lot of effort to try and like work on sort of unheard of projects in between the the stuff that people know about just because it kind of keeps you a little bit more aware of, you know, why, mm. why you kind of started out and, and stuff like that. But, um, so I guess all, all of those things, which is just like a range of people that, you know, no one's ever heard of, but then I guess on like the more career side of things like this, this nest project with Hugh has been really great. And then, um, <clears throat> for a couple of years I was, uh, working, you know, just engineering on whatever Bjork needed doing. And that was really fun as well. She's great. Um, and probably the most rewarding one was for about three years, I was sort of on staff to engineer and mix and program and all sorts of stuff for Guy Sigsworth. Okay. And yeah. he was like, a, you know, a really brilliant mentor. I really, I kind of came to London thinking like, oh, you know, I just want to be some like brilliant sort of uh, band engineer producer guy which you know like a lot of the people that I'd sort of worship growing up and then I sort of stumbled into this job um through a friend who had a connection with him who had engineered for him before and <clears throat> it was it was yeah like sort of from day one it was sort of like oh no you're like you're the engineer now and I was like okay well I guess I'm not coming to London to assist anyone I just have this job now <laughs> and then um that stuff he he kind of really leaves you to your own devices. He might, you know, give give you some feedback on a mix or whatever, but really it was sort of like trial by fire. And it ended up really being more of like a masterclass in uh like a musical education because um his background was, you know, classical music and early music. And he studied, you know, the harpsichord at Cambridge and 
from that wound up in like the BBC Baroque Orchestra and then made the near unpredictable <laughs> uh, pivot into like sort of programming MIDI for studios and pop artists and stuff in London. And, uh, and then he went from that to like writing and producing a lot of the first seal record. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, he went on to like be, um, Björk's MD for like her first sort of solo tour after the sugar cubes with, um, uh, sorry, I'm forgetting his name, but, um, <clears throat> Talvin Singh, that's it. Yeah. So it was him and Talvin Singh and Björk, you know, did those initial tours and, and, you know, he, he kind of co-wrote and produced a lot of, you know, my favorite music of hers, uh, stuff like Unravel and, you know, he played a lot on Homogenic and things like that. So yeah, I sort of unexpectedly ran into a bit of a musical hero that you you don't, you don't really notice is there until you check the credits kind of thing. Mm. Because I guess he wasn't like in the spotlight as, you know, you know, not in, in the sort of producer spotlight in the way that others are sometimes, but then, you know, he still even managed to kind of push further after that and went, went on to work with like Madonna and Britney and stuff like that. So he really, he's had quite a really varied career. And I think he's one of the few people I've ever met who has a like a really unconditional just love for music. And he, you know, would just listen to stuff obsessively, even if it wasn't his cup of tea, just to see if there was something interesting in there that, you know, could be learned from or, or, you know, however you want to look at it. But yeah, I think that was, that was a real turning point for me because that kind of showed me that <clears throat> as, as much as I love it, I didn't, I wasn't just interested in like, you know, putting out mics and recording every day. I was more interested in, you know, production and even later got into kind of, you know, writing music with people as well. So yeah, that was, that was definitely the most sort of probably important and influential sort of job that happened when I, I guess, you know, got into the professional world. Mm, well, what a great influence and a mentor, I suppose, uh, to have. Um, and of course, now you're you're a producer, mixer, engineer, and a songwriter, actually. But um, is there anything you find yourself doing more of out of those things? Honestly, I'm too like um, uh, I don't know. I get really I don't know bummed out if I stay on one thing too long. So I guess that's sort of the reason why I've ended up doing a few mm-hmm. different things. Is <clears throat> the the exciting part is kind of going into something fresh. And I always feel like whenever I've done like really long periods of just mixing every day, I've gotten really kind of bored with it and it yeah. stops being fun. And I guess I've always felt like with music, um, uh, <clears throat> Oh, I guess the thing I've already always told myself is like, well, if I wanted to just like get paid to not enjoy myself, I would have just done another career. The whole point, you know, the whole reason behind getting, into this industry was because I loved music and that's, so that's always kind of like a thing that I returned to, to be like, okay, well, if this is making me feel bored, then maybe I need to like, you know, go and make sure the next job that comes in is, you know, more of a production sort of thing. Or maybe if I've been doing tons of programming and writing and stuff like that, then, you know, I might look for, you know, a band to record with because I miss like going to a studio and just recording, you know, on a desk with a bunch of people. So uh yeah I, I tend it's sort of as a circle that i sort of roam around and sort of go to whatever i haven't done most recently mm, sure that makes sense we all need a bit of variation i suppose don't we yeah i mean sort of at the, at the cost of uh speed of things moving along sometimes because yeah it does it definitely has taken longer to build i don't know uh like a sort of profile as a professional i guess on some level because you know friends of mine who focus like solely on mixing or solely being an engineer or, 
you know, just producing music from their computer or whatever. They've, you know, they've afforded themselves the luxury of just like really excelling in one, one direction. But I think growing up, a lot of the producers that I really, really admired seemed to do a lot of different stuff. You know, they could engineer the record, they could mix the record, they could produce it and, you know, maybe even bang out a string arrangement or whatever. And I, I think that was that kind of all rounder, but without being a jack of all trades, if you know what I mean, like people who took the time to really get as good as they could at each thing, even if it took them longer. Um, that's kind of always been my MO is like kind of using, using my inherent laziness as a, as a tool, if I can, if you know mm-hmm. what I mean, mm-hmm. like, rather than get it done quickly and then have to work harder on it later, which is going to cost me more time. I'd really, I'd usually rather just take it slower to begin with and just, just stop it. And if it's not right, delete it and do it again. Um, Cause you know, I'm sure as any mixer will tell you it's, there are so many problems that could be fixed if it was just done right in the first place. Yes, so yeah, that was, that's definitely kind of been a common, common theme, I guess. Okay, so let's talk about your recent project, Ness. So you recently completed this with your friend Hugh Brunt, who's a composer, orchestrator, and founder of London Contemporary Orchestra. Um, And this was through Penguin Publishing. So for any of our listeners that aren't aware, um, I'm just going to read a bit of the synopsis because it's uh, quite unusual. So... Somewhere on a salt and shingle island inside a ruined concrete structure known as the Green Chapel, a figure called the Armourer is leading a ritual with terrible intent. But something is coming to stop him. So five more than human forms are traversing land, sea and time towards the Green Chapel, moving to the point where they will converge and become Ness. This sounds, I don't know, vaguely ominous. It sounds interesting. Um, tell me about when you first heard about this project and I guess, was it an immediate yes? It's a bit of a strange one, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it was an immediate yes and a very delayed execution. Uh, again, thanks to COVID, uh, we had a, quite a funny run-up to this project. Um, so Hugh called me, I guess it must must have been in 2020, possibly even before the pandemic. And uh, he sort of explained the project and said, you know, I've been asked to compose for a bit of uh, an unusual project, which is, you know, for an audio book is not usually a score for an audio book, but it was sort of a special project with, you know, Robert McFarlane's book and, you know, they got um, a lot of brilliant people involved. And so like, you know, the reading is, is really well acted and it's, you know, it's it's quite a yeah like you said ominous kind of mm-hmm. story set on this island which is a sort of ex military base called Ness and they wanted to do a score that kind of fit it and Hugh being kind of uh you know he doesn't do anything in half measures uh he really wanted to go for it and and give it give this score you know the best it could get so he came up with this idea that he wanted to go to the island and do a lot of field recording and incorporate that into the score. And so uh, originally we were planning to go out to the island as soon as kind of uh, lockdown would sort of allow it. And, you know, we had sort of had these grand plans to like even record it on like an old Nagra recorder and and with ribbon mics, you know, sort of like a really vintage field recorder kind of vibe. But um uh, obviously with COVID, it got a little bit more complicated. So that was that that was the one thing I think where we like relented and used something more modern. 
but really the concept behind it was to use as much um you know period correct equipment as possible to do with the sort of military base on the island and um EMI used to supply, you know, sort of audio slash sonar equipment to the military. So there was this big thing of like, well, we want to use as much EMI sort of equipment of that time as we possibly could. And of course, he was like, well, you know, you're you're the audio guy. Where where can we do that? Mm. And it, you know, it anyone in London kind of knows the the most the the place with the most EMI stuff laying around is definitely Abbey Road. So you know, Hugh, Hugh's already, you know, well connected with them because obviously London Contemporary Orchestra have recorded there a lot and they're brilliant. And Tim and I have worked together a fair bit. So there was, you know, we we had like a good relationship um, where we could, you know, work quite closely and openly on stuff. And mm-hmm. so it did, it did take some time to kind of come together, but eventually Hugh, you know, had managed to get the field recordings and he um, brought them brought them to me in kind of like a raw state with like the the early stage of the composition and was like, so this is where it's sort of at. And then we sort of went back and forth just online with um, just like his logic sessions. And, you know, I would maybe spruce things up a little bit here and there. And then eventually it was all leading up to like the big kind of few days at Abbey Road where we'd come up with a way to kind of execute a lot of what had been done in the score um, in an all analog kind of all tape sort of way with you know as much of this old equipment as possible and one of the major things was a lot of the recordings had been you know sped up and slowed down and pitch shifted and and what have you so i kind of suggested you know at my own uh expense <laughs> mentally uh it was you know it was a lot it was a lot of extra work and I, after i suggested it i was like oh yeah that is going to take some time but in the spirit of the the project, I was like, well, we could do all the pitch shifting analog. We would just have to spend a lot of time with a spreadsheet and a tape machine sort of putting things on and off tape at various speeds. Cause it wasn't just, you know, usually a tape machine, you just have, you know, 15 and 30 ips, maybe seven and a half. And uh, obviously that only allows for switching of octaves. And we wanted to do a lot of stuff in between where stuff had just been slowed down by maybe like 200 cents with sort of very digital, very speed and things like that. So there was a lot of like playing with um, this tape machine at Abbey Road where, you know, it had the very speed so we could, you know, drop something onto tape at, you know, the speed that it originally began as, as a sample. And then uh, we kind of did some funny stuff by, you know, putting little like sine waves at certain pitches right before each sample. So that then we could basically vary speed and basically use a guitar tuner to check that we'd vary speeded down to the exact pitch that we needed wow. with the sine wave. And then we'd be like, okay, now we're safe. We can, we can record these all back in. And so we, we kind of went through and like very systematically reconstructed a very digital um, kind of approach to like these recordings and how they were treated and kind of recreated it all with tape. And we were using, you know, just for the sake of like jamming as, as much of that kind of of the time signal path in there, uh, we were using like the old red console as like a sort of send and return path to and from the tape machine. And then on top of that, we were also doing a lot of the orchestral parts um, that were made uh, with the samples that Hugh did with uh, Spitfire Audio f- from London Contemporary Orchestra. Um, 
which also had sort of a military tie-in because they did it in a sort of old military hangar. The uh, I think it's called the LCO Textures mm-hmm. Library. Um, so he, you know, he kind of allowed himself that outside source because he was like, well, I still orchestrated all these things and it was recorded in a similar spirit. So that was that was sort of allowed through. And um, yeah, we basically just reconstructed this whole thing like that he had as a concept on his laptop and sort of, yeah, rebuilt it from the ground up. And on top of that, we decided just to give all of those things just an extra layer of, uh, you know, I guess filtering through the the idea of the score was um, we played a lot of it out through, you know, the huge, huge Bowers and Wilkins speakers at Abbey Road and um, we'd record them all back through, you know, these 1940s EMI ribbon mics that as far as I know, only Abbey Road has. I've never seen them anywhere else. Um, mm. But so, yeah, there was a lot of like, I guess, reamping, so to speak. And uh, that was also great because it was just, you don't re- it's not really every day you get to sort of just like bring out as much old stuff as possible. Usually when you're working on a more modern project, you, you, you know, you try to work in some of that characterable stuff, but at the end of the day, it sort of still has to sound like a vaguely modern record in some way. Mm. So, you know, you do sort of like make some compromises and go like, okay, well maybe the vocal needs to be a bit clearer than that. So, whereas this was really, you know, it was all about just the concept and, and fulfilling that in as many ways as possible. Um, and then we kind of followed through with that by going back and we mastered it with Alex uh, through the, you know, the old like TG mastering console that they use there as well. So it was like, we tried to really stick to this idea of only using technology from the time. Obviously Pro Tools is a bit of a cheat with that. <laughs> yeah, but, a little bit. You know, that's, <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, I don't think we were quite ready to have to like vary speed on one tape machine and then try and dump it back onto the original tape machine still in sync with the score. I think that might've been that might've been a little too far over the line, but yeah, it was, it was a really great project and it was great to just sort of just have a lot of funny little problems to solve and, uh, you know, not having a ton of pressure from like, uh, like a pop music side of things. It was just like, you know, he, as the composer sort of had his vision and just what he wanted to make happen. And it was a very like, you know, fun project just to be able to, you know, solve problems and come up with solutions and things like that, which is, I guess what every sort of, producer and engineer is really there for um obviously the culture is sort of pushing towards producers kind of being you know minor music celebrities in their own right at times but i think ultimately you know most most will admit that at the end of the day is like it's a service industry you're there to like serve either the art or the the artist or you know Mm. whatever whatever is kind of taking up that position in the project so yeah, that was a really that was a really fun project, I think, and it was like a bit of an antidote to all the stress of you know um, everyone suddenly having to figure out how to you know work from home or you know get a new studio set up together now that they were stuck in COVID and stuff like that. So yeah, it was a, it was just a nice nice way to sort of like tie up you know what was probably a pretty stressful year for everyone, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. And it, it definitely sounds, I think, challenging, but fun, a fun challenge, this one, a completely different way of doing things. Um, I wonder, would you ever do it like this again? Or is it a, a one-time only sort of experiment for this project only? Well, funnily enough, the idea of like playing things at the wrong speed and uh, key and then slowing them down or speeding them up has seems to have crept into a lot of things I've been doing since. <laughs> so oh, really? it's definitely it's made a bit of an impact because there is, there's really a different sound to it. And, uh, 
like just recently I did like a session with um, this artist who's kind of writing their album and we were doing some stuff for that. And, you know, like it needed this very like almost drunk kind of sound, but it, it just didn't feel right when they just tried to play the piano slow and sloppily. So we ended up sort of recording the whole thing, um, you know, uh, I think like a fifth higher and at the appropriate number of BPM faster and then kind of slowing it down. And then it has a really different effect because you get, you know, even just the sound of the keys being hit is b- being slowed down. Cause I guess the difference is, you know, whether you're playing in a higher key or a lower key, usually you're sort of hitting the key on a piano at roughly the same speed or whatever, but you're actually hearing, you know, the hammers are sort of moving in slow motion and things like that. And you get this whole other sense of space and like all the, all the harmonics are kind of different because they're actually higher interactions from different notes being like slowed down and stretched out. So yeah, I think that kind of intimate interaction with the effects of like, um, very speed would definitely, um, yeah, definitely made their mark. I think on, me just thinking differently about certain things when I want, you know, a different sound rather than, I don't know, rolling off a bit of high end and saying, play it slower. It's sort of, you, there's a very deliberate way you can achieve certain effects. And obviously that's been done a million times before because people have been doing it with tape for years. But I think it's one of those things that you sort of take for granted with digital stuff is it's so easy to do or sort of so simple that you won't think of it. You're always looking for some crazy plugin or whatever, but actually a lot of those like first principles things actually still have a place and a way that they can be kind of made modern. Um, but yeah, so that was, yeah, it definitely has kind of lingered on as like a, a thing to do more often after I did it. Mm, and I suppose you have to be more decisive doing it the, let's call it the old fashioned way, I suppose, um, because you don't have take off to take, you know, just, you know, erase something to do it again. Um, did you find that at the time that you had to be very conscious about exactly what you were doing compared to how you would perhaps normally do something without a second thought and just skip and take it again? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we had like spreadsheets written up with like, you know, the, the original, uh, sort of timing and, and pitch of every single sample in the whole project. And, you know, we had to very methodically make our way through because it was sort of it would be a huge waste of time if we, if we, you know, filled up a reel of tape and then realized that we'd done it slightly wrong or whatever, you know, it was the amount of time. It it all has to be done in real time. So, you know, you've kind of thrown the luxury of being able to process things very quickly on a computer out the window. And so suddenly, you know, you are sort of watching the clock and you're, you know, you're second guessing every decision and being Mm. like, is that definitely the best way to do this? And, And things like that. But also, you can't get caught up in the weeds and, and, um, you know, just deliberate on something forever either. That's another thing. So it's funny cause it kind of, it's stretching you in both directions. It's like you, you need to take more time to make decisions. You also don't have as much time to make them. Yes. So it's, yeah, it's sort of squeezing you from both sides and, and you have to sort of just figure it out. But and we did, we did a lot of like preparatory work and, and Hugh is, is really brilliant at organizing that kind of thing. So yeah, he was he was really on top of sort of spreadsheets and things like that, which was a, a huge help. 
Well, good. Um, and obviously, it goes without like saying, Studio Kit is, of course, very key and important for you. And you can tell from listening to you as well. So I know you've used plenty of um, Neve gear over the years. So uh, let's go back to when did you first use something from Neve? Can you remember? Did you get your hands on a desk, maybe in an early studio or something like that? Actually, I think the first one I ever used was there was a university studio uh, where I grew up. And that was definitely like a bit of, uh, obviously like, you know, once, once you move on, you kind of know that there are a million different options and they're all good for different things. But when you're first starting out and you've really only used cheap equipment, um, yeah, the first time you hear something with that level of quality is definitely a bit of an eye opener because you, you spend all this time early on being like, Oh, you know, which, which plugin is going to make this sound better or whatever. And then you have your first experiences using like, you know, I think I think mine was actually a. I was recording drums, and for the first time, I'd like hired some expensive stuff, and I got a C twenty four and some Neve pre's to use for like the overheads of the drums. And it was the first time I'd ever like not used some like ratty old road mics or something, uh, which was like not not that road mics are ratty, but these mm. ones, these particular ones at this studio were very ratty. <laughs> they they'd been bashed about in a lot of demo sessions. Right, cool. So. Um, but yeah, so, you know, that was my kind of first experience. And I just remember a bit, I was probably like 18 and my mind was just blown because I was like, oh, suddenly this sounds like all the records that I listened to. Mm. And all I did the same thing that I always do. The only thing that's changed is, you know, I'm using like $20,000 worth of equipment to do it instead <laughs> of like $100 worth of equipment. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's definitely was like a very like formative experience, like hiring like this pair of, I think it was like a pair of 1073s and a C24. And I was like, oh, okay. So, and you know, that was unfortunately one of those like rug pull moments where you're like, oh shit, I need, (laughs) I'm really going to need to like up my game with like what studios I'm getting into and stuff, because you know, this, this is obviously the way to sound more professional or like, you know, sound more like the records that I'm trying to sound like as a, as a, you know, starting out engineer. Mm -hmm. So there was that. And then I guess, you know, they're quite ubiquitous really uh, in the studio world. Like I've used one in uh, Flux Studios in New York and that was brilliant. Uh, I went there with Guy, we were working on a project and, you know, that. I think the thing that's really great about using an old desk is like, I mean, and I'm like a real like gear, you know, I like, I like being in studios where there are like a million different choices and I can go, I can use this on that and this on that. But definitely the luxury with when you just have one desk that has, you know, a bunch of great EQs and pre's on it is you can sort of just move along without thinking about that stuff. So it's it's a great kind of workflow change when you're being tasked with like a million other decisions other than like what pre to use and what EQ to use when you have something that's like reliable like that. And you know that no, none of it is going to sound wrong or bad. Um then yeah, you can really sort of just get on with the job on the, on the kind of creative side and not worry about like, Oh, is that, you know, is that exactly the right pre if you've got, you know, 32 of them on a desk and they all sound really good, then you're sort of, that's just one thing taken care of all day. Mm. So yeah. And then I guess the most recent one was the, is it a 53, one, one, six, 53 series uh, 53 Neve, 1, 6, the uh what you yeah, should be talking about the um so i was the looking Snap into this today this one. ultra rare 1972 uh knee 53 16 isn't it 
that's the one. And I think I think it's something like it's supposed to be like the broadcast version of kind of the 80 series stuff. Mm. Um and yeah, I mean it was funny because I'd been working, you know, in lockdown all year. So I hadn't like touched a console in like 12 months or maybe even longer because I'd been doing so much kind of like sort of location work um when I was traveling with with Bjork a bit. And uh so yeah, this was like kind of first time I'd sat down in front of a console and I was like, oh yeah, this is you know what I used to do every day. And it was funny, just like it was very natural, just sort of like got back into it and you're like, oh yeah, this is this is really a great workflow because I'm not sitting in front of a computer like grabbing each individual plugin and going like, okay, the snare top mic, what am I going to do with that? It's very like, very just tactile. You sort of like, you you know, the assistant or whoever like puts all the mics up in the order that you like it. And then, you know, you, you turn the prees up and then your hands just kind of move the EQ according to like, you know, what your ears are kind of asking for. And it's very, you can, you can go from like uh, a very raw, like, you know, mics into pre's sound into like quite a finished sounding thing in like quite a short amount of time. And it was a bit of a reminder of that project that I was like, oh yeah, this is like, there's a reason why we come in here and do this in a big studio is because yeah, doing it like on headphones and in like, you know, your producer room is just not as quick or as fun than as, you know, doing it here where it's, it's kind of, it's built to do that. So you know, and that console is really great. I, I I think that was actually that was the second time I worked on one, but the first time I'd used it for drums. So that was that was fun. Okay, and then cool. and that project was kind of a funny rush, like last minute, you know, I, I got the call from the guys in Gengar and they were like, you know, we've had this thing come through and uh the song that they love, um, we don't have a proper recording of, so we really want to put together like a proper studio version of it. And they sent over the demo and we did a bunch of pre-production, uh, you know, as soon as we could. And then we got into snap for a day and we just had to get the whole thing done. And it was, yeah, it was actually really great. Cause it was kind of during that period in lockdown where I think it was on the second lockdown. And so people had sort of studios had sort of acclimatized a bit and they had rules about distancing and masks and, and whatever. So people were starting to get back in and yeah, it was, it was just, uh, it was just nice to be back in a studio with people again. And yeah, that the desk kind of being the centerpiece of it was definitely like a reminder of like, you know, this is really, this is a fun way to do things, even though you can, it's easy to get wrapped up in being in your own studio or whatever. And you just sort of develop your little workarounds for everything. Um, but yeah, that was really fun. And the, you know, the track was really fun and, and Nathan body mixed it and did a really good job. So uh, yeah, that was, that project was quite a quick t- turnaround. And then, you know, the next one we knew it was on, on TV for the new wow. American God series. Yeah, I was going to say, it's so, for which series are they on to now? Is it the third one, did you just say? I don't know. I, what, I don't know what se- what season it was for. I did uh, actually start watching I, that. And when you told me you'd been working on this, I looked it up again. I don't know why I stopped watching it because I really liked it. Well, I haven't actually seen this series, but I had like, it's been on my to watch list, obviously, ever since I did this thing. But um, I think we got distracted with some really long series. I can't remember, but it ended up... It had, like we didn't realize that it had like a million seasons and then so it, catch it ended up, up put sucking, the time in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It sort of ended up sucking up the whole year. So my watch list is pretty much the same as it was eight months ago. Okay. I think from what I remember, it's very graphic, very, it's quite film noir, but very bloody. I think if I'm thinking of the same yeah, program, the trailer, I'm pretty sure there is. The, yeah. Yeah. The trailer that this music went to definitely had a bit of that. Okay. 
Um, yeah, I think I'm going to rewatch that now. Well, but I start again just to refresh my memory. But um, definitely an interesting one to work on. That was at Snap Studios, wasn't it? Yes, that was at Snap, and uh, that was actually my first time there. And it was very, it was quite well organized. The assistant really knew what he was doing, and you know the mics were all in really good condition, which is always such a big thing. Like, there's nothing worse than like hiring a studio because you like the gear list, and you sort of show up, and and they're like, oh half of it doesn't work or mm. you know the thing that you were most looking forward to using is you know inexplicably out on repair all the time and <laughs> or something like that so no they really they had all their stuff and you know it all worked and I think I think there's some kind of tie between them and funky junk so there seems to be always like a few interesting bits of gear around maybe something to do with that but mm. yeah there's um there's a nice selection of stuff there and it's not like you're not going to fi- find the kind of like Abbey Road rack level of like, you know, just 47s just rolling around on the floor. Uh, <laughs> no, that they would never let that happen. They but, never would. You know, no. <laughs> yeah, definitely. There are a lot more there than anywhere else I've been. And, um, but yeah, they, like everything that's there is good and it works and, you know, they have at least one of all the stuff that you really need. So, um, I think that's often like a tough line to find with um, kind of like small to medium studios is finding ones that are smaller and, you know, maybe like fit the budget of the record better or something like that, but still have, you know, that same level of equipment, even if it's scaled down, Um, that can be like a really, really important thing. And I think, you know, sometimes I know everyone loves like clones of things and all that sort of thing, but you know, it's, it's easy to trust your own like hand built clone or replica or whatever of stuff. But when you're going somewhere new, like a new studio and you see that they have, you know, a bunch of like clones of certain mics as opposed to the real thing, you know, you're more inclined to be like, Hmm, okay. Who built that clone? Like Mm. what, which clone is it? And whatever. So yeah, having these studios around that have like the actual stuff and you know what you're kind of going to get. I mean, obviously there's a bit of variation, like every old, um rca 44 or u47 or whatever they all kind of sound a bit different to each other at this point but you sort of know the ballpark of what you're getting Mm. whereas um a lot of studios that run off like kind of cloned gear you you're always a bit like okay how close are we talking here is Mm. it like 50 percent close to that thing that it's copying or is it you know indistinguishable so you know it it kind of takes some of the risk out when you're you know managing a budget for a record and stuff like that and you just want to know that the places you're going are going to have exactly what you need and you're going to be able to get what you need done uh, without having to like, you know, break the news and be like, hmm, we might have to re-record this because it didn't really come out how we'd hoped or something like that. Mm. So, yeah, no, I, I did really enjoy working there. And That's the band good. are great. They're, they're really tight. Amazingly tight, actually, considering that, you know, they weren't able to tour or anything for a year and a half. They they pulled it all off quite quite quickly. That's good. I suppose you're... You- forget almost that everyone else is getting into the swing of work again or whatever that normality is for them so that's good to know they were able to pick it up and uh, get this done yeah exactly and it, actually it seems like everyone's gone crazy busy getting ready to tour again i was helping a friend put together um something for their show and i sort of specked out a little kit because they wanted to have this sort of like live uh, effects loop for their piano in the live show with a real piano. And so I sort of was like speaking to their engineer and going like, well, this is how you would do it to get, you know, that studio thing that we did, you know, recreated live. 
And yeah, even just finding someone to like build the rig out of the gear I spec'd up was like really tough because everyone was like, oh no, they're on tour with Smashing Pumpkins or this person is like prepping to go on this massive tour. So it seems like everyone's definitely like gearing up to like get out on the road because nobody's available. Mm. And um, yeah, it must just be so bizarre to have this just, I don't know, if it's an avalanche, that might be a bit extreme of work coming in now and touring and everything's kind of go, 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 I suppose, is it? Yeah. And I've never, apart from, apart from the Bjork tour that I uh, went along on um, and was doing some technical work on, I've, I've never done touring before. It's really, it's never been my thing really. That was kind of an exception. And um, yeah, so it's, it's kind of, it's, it's weird because I'm going to have to get used to like everyone sort of disappearing for months at a time. Whereas in a way I kind of enjoyed the whole, you know, no one could do a thing for selfish reasons. Cause I was like, Oh, all my musician friends are like stuck in town. They can't leave. So, but you know, obviously very glad that they're able to like get back on, on tour and, you know, hopefully make some cash and then come back and get in the studio again. Yeah, of course. And uh, I wanted to ask you quickly earlier, did you use any of the, um, the mic pre's, the EQ model um, modules, sorry, on the uh, 5316 for American gods? Yeah, everything, everything on the whole, on the whole track oh, was, was done. I mean, I, I think apart from like a couple of things that were done in the box, like a couple of synths or something that were added a bit later. But yeah, I mean, everything that you hear as far as the band goes was all done through the console, which was kind of, that was kind of part of why the day was so fun was it was like, I'd spent all year working from my like home studio where like, you know, maybe I only have like two channels of something. So I have to you know, kind of ration it and mm. or repatch things all the time if I want to use it again for something else. And then suddenly having all these channels, it was sort of like, great, yeah, just put everything on the console. That'll be fine. Um, yeah, we, and then we there was like, you know, a bunch of like outboard compressors and EQs and stuff like that. Mm. But, you know, as a starting point, it was like, it was nice to just like put everything in there and go like, yep, it all sounds good. That's fine. Mm. Um, so yeah, that, yeah. That was that was really fun and yeah definitely pretty much if you listen to that track pretty much everything on it was that console okay brilliant okay um and we're getting a little bit close to christmas i think we're allowed to say it now we're in december so what's uh, the rest of this year looking like to you or maybe even looking in towards next year um unless something's uh, any top secret projects of course or anything um have you got uh, lots of things coming up in the pipeline uh yeah actually so um I don't know if I can say exactly who, but it's with a really good friend of mine. His name's Noah Goldstein. Mm-hmm. Um, he's worked with bloody everyone. Um, he worked with like Arcade Fire, Kanye West. Uh, I think you know he worked on the last couple of Frank Ocean things. He's nice. worked. He did the last, or uh, you know, at least a good chunk of the last FK Twigs record. Mm, okay. Um, I mean, yeah, he's he's really really great guy and he's he's actually helped me a lot over the last period of time and um he was actually the one who kind of got uh got involved with sort of getting me uh like i ended up signing a publishing deal with concord during during the lockdown um oh, just based off like you know well i'd done i'd uh, yeah thank you um i'd done a lot of work with artists where you know it maybe starts as an engineering producing gig and then I don't know, maybe the song's only two minutes long so far. And, you know, we end up kind of writing the last bits of it together and stuff like that. And that seemed to be coming, becoming more and more common in the work I was doing. 
And um, so, yeah, I get, we spoke about it and, you know, he, you know, he's really got his stuff together on that side of things. And he was like, well, you know, you need to make sure that stuff is all on paper and that someone's like, you know, doing the admin to make sure that you're collecting those royalties and things like that. And, you know, I was sort of, these were all things that sort of happened in passing and and he kind of helped me, you know, get that together and formalize it. And he has a kind of, you know, his own team of like people that he likes to work with and stuff. And so, yeah, I've been really lucky to be kind of hanging out with him and working with him on some bits. So, but I'm sure that will all come come out soon enough okay okay well stay tuned then i won't press you any further no it sounds cool though <laughs> yeah it's definitely worked with some good people and it sounds like you've got some exciting stuff coming up yeah hopefully awesome uh well yeah i think what else what else is there what else is it well just christmas and you know to get through and all of that you're coming back to the uk oh aren't yeah you? yeah i've got to come back to london and say goodbye to the sun here in la yeah. and yeah get ready for i guess whatever the next thing is Okay, brilliant. Um, well, it sounds like you've got a lot to be getting on with, a lot of life admin, as you say, a lot of uh, things to uh, sort out and lots of exciting projects. So um, thank you for taking the time today to join us on the podcast. It's been really lovely to talk to you and find out all about this uh, unusual Nest project and you know everything that went into it and all of your you know, work in the studios and all of your use of Neve. So yeah, it's been fantastic. Thank you so much, Jake. No problem. Lovely to talk to you. And you. Um, best of luck with everything. And um, I will talk to you later. Excellent. Bye. Okay. Thanks, Jake. Headliner Radio, supporting the creative community.